is a fifth dimension beyond that which is known to man. It is a dimension as vast as space and as timeless as infinity. It is the middle ground between light and shadow, between science and superstition, and it lies between the pit of man's fears and the summit of his knowledge. This is the dimension of imagination. It is an area which we call the twilight zone. say arrived in the twilight zone i've amassed quite a collection of twilight zone related books and magazines and so on and i occasionally like to take the time to sit back and read through some of the volumes in the twilight zone library and you know sometimes it might be a short story from one of the anthology books other times it might be an interview or some trivia and so on but On this occasion, I'm looking through a book called Philosophy in the Twilight Zone, which is a series of essays about the show, edited together by Noel Carroll and Lester Hunt. Now, I think the beauty of the Twilight Zone is that you can discuss it on many levels. You can discuss it purely on the merits of the story, or you can dig a little bit deeper and look at the more philosophical aspects of the show. It's all there. My intention with our conversations has always been to hopefully be somewhere in between. And what I mean by that is I want these conversations to be accessible and as all-inclusive as possible. But this is a very interesting book and, you know, we might dig into it from time to time. An essay entitled Tales of Dread in the Twilight Zone by Noel Carroll caught my eye recently, and I'll read a short excerpt from the book for you. He says, I define a tale of dread as a narrative fantasy about an event in which a character is punished in a manner that is appropriate, the punishment fits the crime, and mordantly humorous, for example, often ironic. I call these stories tales of dread because they mandate that audiences entertain paranoid or anxious imaginings, specifically that the universe is governed by an all-knowing and controlling intelligence that meets out justice with diabolical wit. You know, I've often said how I view Rod Serling when he's presenting The Twilight Zone, as almost like a being from the Twilight Zone, maybe a messenger who is just here to pass on the lessons, or maybe more than that. He never seems to take any pleasure in the fates of the people who receive some measure of cosmic justice. He just tells us what their fates are and sometimes why it happened. He might occasionally express some sort of distaste at some aspect of humanity, but he'll never go so far as to say that anyone deserves what the Twilight Zone gives them. 
And I think what Noel Carroll goes on to write perhaps could be considered as a similar point of view whereby the writer is doing more than just merely writing the story. Noel Carroll goes on to write, Tales of Dread revel in their over-coherence and they use it as a means to encourage the audience to abandon reliance upon the regularities that we depend upon to make sense of the world in which we live and, instead, invite us to infer the operation of a different order of causation, a kind of moral causation rather than a physical causation. Whereas the authors of many realistic or naturalistic narratives strive to deflect attention away from themselves, the creator of the tale of dread aspires to elicit the uncanny feeling or apprehension that the world represented in the fiction itself is authored, that is, governed ontologically by presiding intelligence, with its blatant, even shameless emphasis on the improbability of its events and its coincidences. So an interesting aside, I thought, I think there's definitely some aspects of the tale of dread, as Noel Carroll puts here in the story that we'll be discussing tonight. Now originally this story was actually called Forever and a Day and that title wasn't changed until months after it was filmed and the opening narration as scripted but not recorded went like this. There are some stories that by their nature because their ingredients add up to nothing but a question mark must begin this way. Once upon a time. So this story must begin once upon a time there was a professor named Jameson who talked of the past as if it happened yesterday, who talked of dead things and times and places and men as if he'd known them personally. And while most of the student body found Professor Jameson's lectures an excursion into a new kind of excitement, there were those like Professor Samuel Kittredge who felt a gnawing, disturbing, disquieting sense of wonder as to the youngish looking man in the front of the classroom who could lecture about the events of a hundred years past as if he had lived through them. It conjured up a theory that by rights should be left within the pages of a book on black magic, but for some, and particularly for Professor Kittredge, it loomed up in the room like a kind of spectre. A theory that was more like a nightmare, a simple question that for the sake of sanity best remain unanswered. How old was the youngish looking professor who spoke so knowledgeably about the past? You're looking at act one, scene one of a nightmare. One not restricted to witching hours and dark rain-swept nights. Professor Walter Jameson, popular beyond words, who talks of the past as if it were the present, who conjures up the dead as if they were alive. The Union soldiers burned Atlanta, but I assure you they took no pleasure in their work. They were forced to it by a man they hated more than they could ever hate the rebels, an ugly, sullen, unbelievably brutal man named William Tecumseh Sherman. 
first broadcast on March 18th, 1960, written by Charles Beaumont and directed by Anton Leder. Leder would only direct two Twilight Zone episodes in all, this one and the season three episode, The Midnight Sun. So I guess what he lacks in quantity, he makes up for in quality. His, his overall resume mentions several of the television shows that we seem to mention on the show all the time. Things like Rawhide, Lost in Space, you know, those typical shows of the time. And as a horror fan, the sequel to Village of the Damned, which is Children of the Damned, kind of sticks out to me particularly. But a more interest to me is the fact that he used to write direct and produce for the radio show Suspense which is one of the shows that you can find at the Twilight Zone Network in terms of trivia there isn't a great deal to speak about but uh, as always we'll do our best so we see Professor Sam Kittredge sitting in the classroom as Walter Jameson gives this very passionate lesson and we can immediately see that something is playing on Kittredge's mind in the view of this man, Professor Samuel Kitteridge, Walter Jameson has access to knowledge that couldn't come out of a volume of history, but rather from a book on black magic, which is to say that this nightmare begins at noon. Mark Zickery in The Twilight Zone Companion calls this episode essentially a dialogue between two men. And he compares it to another Charles Beaumont written episode, Perchance to Dream. And I think he's right, there really are only four characters in this story, but it's really about the conversation between Walter Jameson and Sam Kittredge. A conversation that Kittredge sets up by inviting Jameson to dinner that night. Really, darling, must you always be on time? Always. Please. Remember, you're a PhD. Not yet, I'm not. There's a little matter of an examination, remember? A technicality. Anyway, you're going to be a housewife. The devil she is. I'm giving you my daughter's hand, not her brain. She's going to get that PhD if, if I, I have, have to, to spank her. I know. So now we know that Jameson is engaged to Kittredge's daughter, Susanna. And it all seems to be very nice and pleasant, but... There is the matter of the mysterious old lady that seems to be watching Jameson as he left his house, and we'll come back to her later on. Now I'm not going to recount the plot beat by beat, but with Susanna safely tucked away upstairs, it's time for Sam Kittredge to get out what's really been playing on his mind. Walter, tell me something, will you? Of course. How old are you? Forty-four. I seem to recall that when you applied for a post on the university staff, you listed your age as 39. That was, let me see, 1947, which would make you 51. Come on, Sam. All right, I'm 51. Too old for Susanna, is that it? In a sense. So the conversation begins, and it's a, it's a gradual interrogation of Walter Jameson by Sam Kittredge, an unveiling of pieces of evidence that Sam has gotten together that lead him to believe that Walter Jameson is in fact older than he's letting on. The way he tells the stories in class, the way he doesn't seem to have aged since they met, and the picture that he's found in a book of a man 
who looks exactly like Jameson during the Civil War. You shouldn't have kept that ring, you know. It's a dead giveaway. What are you getting at, Sam? Oh, come, Walter, you know exactly what I'm getting at. Oh, you're joking. Just because I happen to look like somebody in a photograph. And happen to be wearing the same ring and happen to have the same small mole on the left side of your face? Walter, you and I have been very close for 12 years. Tell me the truth. You, you are that man in the photograph, aren't you? And Jameson comes clean. He realises that there's no point in lying, so he admits it. And we learn that he's actually over 2,000 years old. But what starts to become apparent as they talk is that it's not so much that Kitterson is astounded by what he's hearing, but he has a real desperation about him that starts to creep in. You know, he he starts to plead with Jameson to tell him the secret of his eternal youth. I was like you, Sam. Afraid of death. And when I thought of all the things there were to know in the miserable few years that a man had to know them, it seemed senseless. At night, every night, I dreamed, as you dream, of immortality. Only if a man lived forever, I thought, could there be any point in living at all. Then one day, I met an alchemist. He said that he could grant my wish, only, of course, it would cost a great deal of money. I was desperate. I paid him his money and submitted to his experiments. I remember very little about it. I lay in a coma for many weeks, and when I revived, I was alone. The alchemist had disappeared. Go on. There's really very little more to tell. I thought, of course, that the experiment had failed because I didn't feel any differently. But then, I saw my wife and my children aging. My friends dying. I guess this is one of the great questions of our existence. And sometimes one of the great triumphs of fiction is that it involves the audience by asking them a question that they have such a vested interest in that they can't help but put themselves in the shoes of the character. You know, what would you do if you had the chance to be immortal? Would you take it? Do you want to live forever the way you are now? Old, sick. It's better than dying. No. You're wrong, Sam. I was wrong. It's death that gives this world its point. We love a rose because we know it'll soon be gone. Whoever loved a stone. I think we all understand where Walter Jameson is coming from, you know. The idea that life is precious because it's finite is what he's saying and I'm always reminded of the episode A Nice Place to Visit when I watch Long Live Walter Jameson. It's another episode where a person seems to get what most of us would gladly have but in the end he learns that infinite luck, like infinite life, is more of a curse than a blessing. It takes the mystery out of everything. So I guess the thing is that even though we understand this lesson, do we really learn from it? And I guess I'll ask you that again at the end. Now Sam Kittredge is played by a gentleman by the name of Edgar Stelly. What I like is how this calm and respectable professor kind of goes to pieces and he really just shows how frightened he is of aging and death. You know, at times he seems almost awkward and he's not afraid to 
appear slightly silly at times as he's pleading with Jameson. Edgar Stelly, he was a working actor for many years and was in several of the shows that we always seem to talk about on the show. But there's one show in particular that is of interest to Twilight Zone fans, I think, that links him back to the show. If you recall when we discussed the episode What You Need, we spoke about how the story had been made before as part of the television series that predates the Twilight Zone by almost a decade, Tales of Tomorrow. In that show, Stelly played the part of Peter Talley. The way that Charles Beaumont writes Sam Kitterson is quite interesting to me because following his desperate pleas to Jameson, once he realises that there's no way he can gain immortality too, once he's free of that idea in his mind, he starts to look at the situation from the point of view of a father. I suppose you've been married several times. Yes. How long with each woman, Walter? Ten years? Fifteen years? I see. Sam, I tried to resign six months ago. You talked me out of it. Do you remember that? Yes. I knew Susanna was falling in love with me. And I knew what would happen. It's happened before. A few years of happiness and then... I tried to warn her. I did everything in my power to discourage her. Except tell her the truth. Now, how could I do that? She'd have thought I was mad. Then why didn't you leave? Because by then it was too late. I was in love with her. I need her. So the question I have to ask is, where was this fatherly concern for Susanna when he still thought that immortality might be on the table? Had he been able to become a mortal, would he have still had that care? You know, I still think Kitterson is a good man, but along with money and power, life seems to be one of those things that people will cling on to no matter what the cost and the promise of it can corrupt. So I kind of like how Kitterson was kind of temporarily blinded to what his real responsibilities were in life by the prospect of immortality. I can't let you marry my daughter. And why not? Well, come on. Your father seems to think I'm too old for you, darling. That's the silliest thing I ever heard of. Good. Then you'll marry me. Tonight. I think you mean it. I do. You go upstairs, pack your prettiest things. I'll pick you up in 15 minutes. I wish I had more to say about the role of Susanna and the actress who played her, Dodie Heath, but to be honest, there really isn't much to say. You know, the part is very small. There's not much room to really do anything with it. And Dodie Heath herself seems to have had a career spanning two decades, but none of her credits are really jumping out at me. Our next big development is the payoff to the old lady that we saw earlier on in the episode. <laughs> Hello, Tommy. Who are you? Don't you recognize me, Tommy? Look hard. Look into my eyes. You called them the most beautiful you'd ever seen once a long time ago. Estelle Winwood is the name of the actress who played Lorette Bowen, who had previously been married to Walter Jameson under another name. And at the time of filming this, she would have been about 77 having been born in 1883 
and we'll talk more about her age a little later on. But I will say that thankfully, despite her playing a woman of great age on the Twilight Zone, it was nowhere near the end of her career. So Walter's past is finally catching up with him, and I think it's probably a disservice to say Walter Jameson was a bad person too. I don't think he ever wanted to hurt anyone, but doing what he did, getting involved with people the way he did, you know, there has to be some fallout from that, there has to be consequences. People need companionship, and a person who doesn't die is no exception. So what do you do? Do you spend eternity alone? Which it seems is what Walter Jameson was trying to do before he fell for Susanna. Before his feelings clouded his logic. So again we have this whole thing of immortality clouding people's judgement. It clouded Susanna's father's judgement. To the point where he didn't have a care for her well-being. And now Walter Jameson too is acting in a very selfish way and potentially depriving Susanna of her right to fall in love with someone and grow old with someone. So that rebalance, that fixing of the natural order of things, I guess, happens when he gets shot by Lorette. Hello, Sam. I thought I heard... Are you all right? I don't know. It doesn't matter. Either way, you'll be rid of me. What do you mean? I mean, I've come to my senses at last. I like that. You know, he's come to his senses and either way it'll be okay. It might be the first time in his long life that he's really been confronted with someone from his past like that and... It looks like he has finally learned his lesson. And then we come to the big set piece of the episode where Walter Jameson ages before our eyes. It's it's a very ambitious thing for a television show to do and to their credit I think they did an excellent job. I think the sudden aging effect is really well done and the old age makeup on Kevin McCarthy is very well done too. Now Mark Zickery cites this, this aging effect as being a close collaboration between the actor Kevin McCarthy, the director of photography George Clemens, and William Tuttle, who's the head of the NGM makeup department. And the effect that they used was something that George Clemens had first encountered while working on Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde in 1931. And Kevin McCarthy explains it like this. The 10 or 15 seconds on the screen when I age was done with red and green lines on my face. We shot the film in black and white with red and green filters. When we switched the colour filters, the lines that were obscured then appeared on the screen. And it looks like I age without any special effects. The man who did the makeup on me that day told me when he did the same trick for Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, it cost the studio $5,000. Now he was doing it for the Twilight Zone, and it was costing them $25,000. I imagine everyone listening to this will be familiar with Kevin McCarthy. He doesn't need much introduction, because he was a regular face on film and television since the 40s until quite recently. In the Twilight Zone companion, he explains his process for bringing Walter Jameson to life and his acting decisions. And he says part of it 
is that he had to be modest and unassuming. He didn't want to call any attention to himself. He always sort of fades into the landscape. So if that was his intention, then I think he pulled it off admirably and I had no trouble believing that he... He wasn't necessarily an old man in a younger man's body, but as he said earlier on in the episode, he was just someone who didn't necessarily get wiser. He just kept on living. And McCarthy says in the audio commentary to this episode that apart from Invasion of the Body Snatchers, he got the most mail about playing Walter Jameson. So I think this episode as a whole really has left its mark on people. Now Martin Grams Jr. in Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic mentions an episode of Tales from the Crypt which seems to have been influenced by this episode that also stars Kevin McCarthy and he says in the episode Curiosity Killed on Tales from the Crypt actor Kevin McCarthy played the role of Jack a man whose disagreeable wife wanted the secret of eternal youth. After she kills him with a poison causing him to turn to dust she finds herself the victim of an unexpected side effect. I'm a big fan of this episode, I, I like it a lot. In the great tradition of the Twilight Zone, it's a case of dropping the unexplained or the fantastic into the everyday world and you see what happens. And I really enjoy that conversation between Jameson and Kittredge that does a great job of exploring what it would really mean in the real world to be immortal. As I said earlier, The Twilight Zone has touched on similar themes in other episodes. And I think there's a lot of other fiction out there that does exactly the same thing with the question of mortality. You know, sometimes it's a, it's a vampire film, you know, that kind of thing. It asks the question, is it our mortality that defines us? Could any of us really turn down the chance to go on living? Even with the lessons learned from this episode, I still can't really answer that one. In the Twilight Zone companion, Kevin McCarthy says, I did a little segment in the new invasion of the Body Snatchers and they said, My God, except that your hair has changed colour, you look the same as you did when you did it 20 years ago. My own kids, I can see, are looking very young. They don't have faces or physiques that denote the passage of time so easily. So I say to myself, maybe I am going to live to be 2,000 years old. I'm sorry to say that Kevin McCarthy didn't live to be 2,000 years old, but he did live a good long life to the age of 96 until we lost him in 2010. But he's not alone because coincidentally everyone who starred in this episode seems to have been gifted with long life. Edgar Stelly lived to be 89 years old. Estelle Winwood, who played Walter Jameson's earlier wife, lived to be 101. And Dodie Heath, who played Susanna, the youngest member of the cast, as far as I can find, and I hope I'm right, is still with us. But, unfortunately, the writer of the story, Charles Beaumont, did pass too soon, and it is a sad kind of legacy of this episode that it's often quoted ironically, because Beaumont died of an illness that made him appear to be old before his time. Last stop on a long journey. As yet another human being returns to the vast nothingness that is the beginning and into the dust that is always the end. If 
you notice then that closing narration neglected to actually mention the Twilight Zone. And it's something I'm going to be picking up on in a couple of episodes time because there is something that I want to bring up about that. But possibly the first time it's not mentioned in the series, I'm not too sure. But um, anyway, yeah, not, not mentioned in the opening or closing narration. <sighs> okay, before we finish up, I've just got a little mail to read. So it's time for Submitted for your approval. First of all, I'll just give thanks to, uh, as I always like to do, the people who have took the time to give me an iTunes review. I think it's especially it's especially satisfying for me that people still take the time to do that, even though my schedule has been so spotty of late. But uh, I don't recall whether I thanked Joy0223 in the last episode, but if I didn't, thank you. It was a great message of support, so thanks very much. I also got one from a fellow podcaster in the US called Campfire Radio Theatre. Now, Google them, look them up, because uh, I did, and I checked out some of their stuff, and they do some really good free kind of old-time radio-style uh, shows, kind of like, as the title says, Campfire Radio Theatre. You know, I guess you know what you're getting with something like that, and they really deliver, so thank you, and it's, it's a pleasure to hear from you. And then I received an email from... A gentleman by the name of Grant, entitled New Fan. And he says, Hello Tom, first of all, let me give you a bit of background on my history with the Twilight Zone. There is none, apart from a hazy memory of watching Twilight Zone the movie with my dad in my childhood and being terrified by Dan Aykroyd's monster transformation. I had recently been thinking about watching the original series and began seeking information regarding the show's place in TV and sci-fi history. This led me to stumbling upon your podcast. The enthusiasm and information contained in your podcast immediately led me to start watching the show from the very beginning. I stopped listening to the podcast after one episode so as not to spoil any more stories for myself. It's now become a daily accompaniment to each story as I make my way through an episode or two a day. I also checked out the sister podcast for Night Gallery and have again had to stop myself until the season one box set arrives. Thank you so much for an awesome podcast and keep up the excellent work. Yours thankfully, Grant. Well, thank you, Grant. Thanks for the kind words. I'm glad you're enjoying the podcast. And I always like it when people watch along like that. You know, that's that's something of great personal satisfaction to me. And I'm sure Chris will think the same over at the Night Gallery podcast. Well, before I go, that just leaves me to say thanks again for listening, and there have been a few disruptions to the podcast feeds over at the Twilight Zone Network, but we're we're almost on top of that, so things should be resuming back to normal soon. But check the site out, you know, it's a, it's a slow growth, but we are adding bits of content here and there, and we're hoping to, you know, really build up a body of twilight zone work there you know there's been some great art submitted lately by a great artist by the name of mr dubcraft he's got a gallery up there and also arlen schumer who is the author of visions from the twilight zone kindly let us use some images as well so you know there's a lot going on go over and check it out and you know if you think you if you think you can add something to the site in any way then send us an email tom at the twilight zone network 
dot com uh, and you know we'll consider it let's see let's talk about your ideas and we'll you know we'll see what we can put together okay that's all from me if you'd like to send any comments in for next time about the episode people are alike all over then you can email me like i said at tom at the twilight zone network.com but before you do listen to that episode a while ago now a friend of mine by the name of Brandy Jacola, a lovely woman from the US with a gorgeous voice, read the story on the podcast Brothers Beyond the Void, from which people are alike all over was actually adapted. So if you have a bit of spare time, go back and listen to that because she did a beautiful job on it and I hope she'll do it again soon for us one day. So thanks for listening and I'll speak to you soon. Bye bye. <laughs>